0: Hi, welcome to Innovative Leadership, co-creating our future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute and a fellow with the International Leadership Association. This podcast is part of a series hosted in conjunction with the International Leadership Association as part of their 2020 Global Leadership Conference, focusing on leading at the edge. At the Innovative Leadership Institute, we help leaders elevate the quality of their leadership and co-create the thriving future they seek. We assist them in navigating the disruptive trends they're facing, developing strategies to elevate themselves and their organizations to continually meet the challenges they face. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoy the content. With me on the show today, I am delighted to have Dr. Laura Morgan Roberts and Dr. Courtney McClooney. Laura's an innovative global scholar and consultant on the science of maximizing human potential in diverse organizations and communities. She's published over 50 research articles, teaching cases, and practitioner-oriented tools for strategically activating best selves through strength-based development, workplace equity, and inclusion. Laura is also a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review and the Academy of Management Review. Her influential publications and presentations on diversity, authenticity, and leadership development have been recognized by Thinker 50 on the Radar and the Academy of Management. Courtney is an assistant professor on organizational behavior in the School of Industrial and Labor Relations at Cornell University. Her research examines how practices and norms in organizational context shape marginalized groups' experiences and perpetuate inequitable structures. She completed a postdoctoral fellowship at Darden School of Business at the University of Virginia and earned her PhD in psychology at the University of Michigan. Courtney has published numerous articles and book chapters in academic practitioner outlets on diversity, inclusion, race, and gender at work. So how can we change the way conversations about diversity, equity, and inclusion are progressing to move toward productive inquiring and learning experiences and ultimately creating more just and equitable workplaces and societies? How can we understand the effects outside of work activities have on people of color within work? Laura and Courtney join me today to share insights from their work and encourage leaders to be examining and understanding the racial barriers and how they can remove them. Both of you, thank you so much for joining the show today. I'm delighted to be able to talk to you and share your work. Do you want to share anything more about yourselves before we jump into the conversation?
1: Let's jump in. I'm happy to be here.
0: Can you share with us a little bit about what you're currently working on in the realm of DEI?
1: Well, I'll start Laura Morgan Roberts, as you mentioned, and I am a professor of practice at my alma mater, which is the University of Virginia. I'm currently on faculty in the Darden School of Business and I teach courses in fields related to leadership. That includes organizational behavior, negotiations, and of course, talent management and diversity. Questions that have always guided my research stem from intellectual and personal passion around co-creating the conditions where we can truly become our best selves individually and collectively. And I have learned over my years of research coming at that question from various angles that the only way for us to get to our best selves, individually and collectively, is through embodying the principles of diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. It's as simple as acknowledging and recognizing that we all have a diversity of strengths. It also means that we acknowledge and recognize that if the context does not invite, welcome, or include our strengths, we won't be able to activate those strengths. We won't be able to bring be our best selves. You know, what might happen in context to, at work that would keep us from activating our best selves, from feeling fully included in terms of our strengths? Well, this is where we get into issues of equity and justice. It's about stereotyping. It's about conscious and intentional bias. It's about unconscious, but deep seated and systemic bias that limit the opportunities that black and brown people have to grow and develop in their organizations and in their careers and expand the opportunities that groups in power historically and currently have to quote unquote become their best selves. so when we embrace principles of equity and justice, we create a broader set of opportunities for people from all backgrounds, including their cultures, including their gender, including nationality, religiosity, sexual orientation, social class, and many other dimensions of difference uh, to bring those identities to the work that we do as a resource that strengthens us and that strengthens our community. But as long as we continue to perpetuate exclusion and marginalization and injustice, we're gonna undermine that effort. And we're not going to create the kinds of experiences that people need to truly grow, develop, and become their best selves. That creates a lose-lose situation for everyone across the board. I'm invested in collective thriving and flourishing. And so diversity, inclusion, equity, and justice is the pathway, I believe, for us to get there.
0: That is beautifully stated. And I want to add then for the people who are more concerned with the bottom line than everyone's experiences, I think we still have folks who have more of a financial orientation than an engagement orientation, that it also impacts the bottom line.
1: It does impact the bottom line adversely, but I, I want to speak with full candor about this dynamic through a historical lens you can be extremely profitable and also exploitative. In fact, exploitation can fuel profitability. And so the moral principles and ethical guardrails that leaders put in place are going to dictate whether or not the means will justify the ends. If we fully engage people of a wide range of backgrounds, it will enhance our business operations and our productivity and our outcomes. It is not the only way to get rich. You can get rich with using a set of practices and principles that stand in in clear violation of everything that I just offered up. And I think that's, that's one place that the discourse has fallen short over the past 20, 30 years and our zeal to sell the business case for diversity, we have not kept on the table in a, in a you know, parallel conversation that there has also been and was even beginning with the enslavement of Africans and prior, a business case for marginalizing, exploiting, oppressing, dehumanizing our fellow brothers and sisters. So absolutely, there's a business case. I stand by the science around (laughs) the benefits of leveraging our diversity as resources a hundred percent and encourage us to all think about it through that lens and perspective with keeping in mind the moral foundations and principles that should guard any kind of profit-oriented activity.
0: As you say that, I'm thinking of something that happened early in my career when a client said all this, you know, inclusion, and it wasn't a DEI client, it was employee engagement. And his argument was, I believe it, but as long as I am measured on the bottom line, I'm going to do what I have to do. And so I wanted to make sure that we bring in both moral and ethical, and also that for leaders who want to do what we would consider the right thing and are working in environments that consider right the, the responsibility to shareholders for money almost exclusively that there is a path for de and i that is also aligned now with what they're doing
1: that's right and if someone says you know i'm going to do what i have to do well that's the bare minimum and so true you can do what you have to do and and not invoke a deep concern around employee engagement but if you really want to do the best that you can do for your wide range of stakeholders, you would have that, you know, full throated concern and investment in engagement across the board. And then from there begin to develop the initiatives and the accountability metrics that would support full engagement for all of your employees. Because when you do that, you will be better. You will perform better and you will inherently be better. Um, And so so I do, and I, I know that my colleague, Courtney McClooney, as well, always encouraged leaders to aspire toward that best possible outcome and not just the minimum.
0: For people who listen to me regularly, the moral and ethical, what I would call now mandate, is something I care deeply about. And I'm also trying to speak to listeners who may not be aligned with that. So this has been a year of significant protest and people taking their voices back in the Black Lives Matter movement, before that in the Me Too movement. So we're seeing a lot of activity, but I'm not sure yet what measurable results we're seeing. What are the challenges, biggest challenges you see in the context of all that's unfolded in the last year-ish and you're in Charlottesville I, I believe Laura where where a couple of years ago you saw some really ugly demonstrations.
1: Yeah, Charlottesville I did. I am in between DC and Charlottesville. So much to say about life and all of these issues. Right now I've been based in DC since March 2020 due to the pandemic. So in the context, gosh, where to start in terms of the biggest challenges? I mean, gosh, they're just magnanimous. Um, Structurally, we are in the midst of a global pandemic that is disproportionately impacting Black and brown communities. That's probably the understatement of the year. It's devastating, Black and brown communities. And that's a cross-generational impact that is impacting our economic base, which is already fragile. It is because of generations of exploitation. It's undermining our public health systems, which were already inadequate. It is disarming our educational support systems and services that we know are so needed. And so there's a concern about the long-term impact where the achievement gap, the you know, translates into questions about talent and, and pipeline and qualifications along that road. So structurally, there's there's obviously a lot. I also do a lot of work in trying to engage personal and social narratives around who we are, how we contribute from a source of strength. I think it's undeniable to look at the impact that Black women have had on upholding the democracy of the United States of America, and by extension, global democracy in 2020 it's undeniable to acknowledge what black women have done in in terms of ensuring the public health and safety. And as government officials, as activists, as researchers, investigators, as developers of one of the COVID vaccines and so on and so forth. So there's a narrative around strength and leadership and contribution that needs to be told. So when I say, you know, one of the biggest challenges or things that needs to happen is, yes, we need to address the structural issues and challenges, but we also need to shed light on the narratives of sacrifice and strength and capable leadership that we're carrying into 2021 in symbolic and and very real terms on the shoulders of Kamala Harris and so many others that are to follow. The last piece I would say in the narrative is the flip side um, of everything that I offered about structure and leadership, and that's denial. It's the narrative that race doesn't really matter, that there is no structural inequality, that there are not differences, that there was an executive order that said, don't even talk about any of that stuff that I just said in the past 15 minutes, because it's harmful and damaging and it's not real. And then other layers of deception and denial that make it very difficult for us to continue to move forward and do the work that we're dedicated and committed toward doing.
0: Thank you for that narrative, because it seems as if we're living in alternate universes where there are people who think implicit bias and explicit bias aren't happening. And then there are others of us who have looked deeply within ourselves and we see our own biases and it's hard to acknowledge that given the person I think I am, that I still carry biases. That personal work is incredibly difficult and yet absolutely foundational to moving us forward to a place where each of us can behave in a way that is truly inclusive and truly equitable and just.
1: Yeah, agreed wholeheartedly. So let's
0: move, Laura, conversations about DE&I Can quickly deteriorate. How can we change those conversations to allow them to move toward productive inquiry and learning experiences? And this is based on your research and a logical next step to what we're talking about. Are we even owning that there is something happening here? And how do we move it in a way that people can engage in truly versus feeling assaulted or not trusted?
1: -hmm mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that the approach it requires three zones of action, head, heart, and hands. So with our heads, we have to acknowledge that these disparities exist, that there are inequalities. And we have to resist the temptation to invoke false equivalencies, that is to compare one set of experiences to another set of experiences that is tantamount to apples versus oranges, which is saying, oh, well, you feel that you're the target of bias because you're a Black woman. You know, I'm an introvert and things aren't easy for me either as a white male introvert. Not quite the same. So that the first piece is acknowledged. Then go to the heart zone, because this is where we have to have more of that empathy and the concern and compassion for others. We affirm, we affirm others' experiences, we affirm the strength and the potential that they have in terms of you know contributing in valued and meaningful ways into our work together and then together we can engage in action then we can roll up our sleeves put our hands to work and engage in action so i invite my clients when are either introducing this framework or starting to work with them in, in deeper planning and execution sessions to think to take this personal affirmation to heart which is you know, acknowledging the reality of race and other forms of inequality and affirming someone else's potential, particularly that of underrepresented groups, does not negate the value of my own experiences or the legitimacy of my own struggle or hardships, right? It's not that if you focus on structural inequality, then you no longer can hold on to your truth about the struggle that you had as a working class person, right? Those things can be held together as we try to work to address inequality. But if people feel that they have to trade one for the other, it becomes pretty explosive pretty quickly. So those are some of the first steps Mm -hmm. that I offer in trying to move forward and, and advance the conversations together. And then also just sharing a lot of the context that we opened with today about the importance of engagement and truly inviting us all to come in and activate our best selves. The the final thing that I offer and this is where my writing is going in the future in the very near future I've already started but well keep building out is just around the concept of freedom at work. You know, because people seem to all resonate with this concept of freedom and So when we start to talk about the experiences of freedom and the varied experiences of freedom, we're using the same language of virtuous ideal and principle that people are anchored into, but haven't really thought about the ways that it manifests for different groups and organizations. So I'm finding that as I use that framework, people are feeling more equipped to enter into the conversation for themselves be more honest and self-reflective, but also be more bold and courageous as leaders because they recognize what they're fighting for on behalf of others.
0: So let's go back to false equivalency and then go more into freedom at work. And I picked this one because I know I've done it so often, not to say my experiences are the same, but in an effort to empathize. And It was only when one of my colleagues said, like, you're doing it again. Stop doing that. Calling me out let me hear that what he's hearing from me is minimizing his experience rather than me being empathetic. So I think it's so important for people who are trying that we still come across wrong. Can you say more about that?
1: So as I mentioned I'm in Washington DC and we're having this conversation less than 48 hours after the insurrection at the US Capitol. So I just wanted to time stamp that mm-hmm. kind of get the um the context because it it relates to my meetings yesterday, which was, you know, 24 hours after things were happening. And as mentioned before, a lot of my colleagues are in Charlottesville, I'm in DC. So people are checking in and saying, oh my goodness, you know, what is, gosh, where are we? Look at the state of our world and so forth. And then they looked at me and they were like, oh, wait, Laura, how are things in DC? And then I'd have to explain to them you know well this is what's happening both of my children have you know full counseling teams on staff right now i'm going to a group session with one of my children they're of course all learning from home this is how native washingtonians experience this because they have been taught that the un that the Capitol is sacred ground this is how black washingtonians are experiencing this having been afraid to just step on the steps for a photo op without permission you know, not to mention have a protest that would come and take over that space and territory, right? So I'm trying to give those different perspectives. This is a a global issue that has been traumatic for so many people. Here's the unique lived experience for Laura Morgan Roberts on this day as we speak. And one colleague sent me an email later that day and said, I just want you to know I've been thinking about you. And I recognize that I could never understand how you're experiencing this right now, but my heart goes out to you and your children and I'm here for you, you know, in support. So, uh, you know, a bit of a, a long answer with an illustration there, Maureen, but that was a moment where it was important because everybody can say, oh yeah, we're all going through this. This is terrible for all of us. This is terrible for our country. But then let just just be able to pause and look and say, but wait a minute, from where you're positioned right now, you're having a different experience of this tragedy. And out of concern and compassion, I'm going to engage you in that.
0: Thank you. I think that is a brilliant answer and example because I go to my niece is a police officer in DC. Yeah. So I'm through her worried or worried yeah. about her. Yeah. You're worried about your kids and your home. So we are having different experiences because I'm I wasn't in D.C. when it happened. I didn't worry about walking down the street. So, Or, or I, neighbors or friends or church members and others who all mm-hmm. work in the Capitol building. So if I were to give conversational recipes, it would be, I don't understand your experience, but you're in my heart. We are with Laura Morgan Roberts and Courtney McClooney, and we are talking about D.E. and I. So Courtney... What can be done to ensure we understand the effects outside of work racial events have on people of color within work? And again, the context of what's just happened in D.C., I think is a prominent example of what's happening in our context that impacts specifically people of color at work.
2: Yes, Maureen. So this specific incident or event is something that, of course, draws people's attention in. It seems so blatant that there was double standards in how police have been launched and enforced whenever there are peaceful Black Lives Matter protests, similar to what we've seen this past summer. Following the murder of George Floyd, there were over 14,000 arrests in Minneapolis, Minnesota alone, in comparison to the lack of police force and arrest that we saw following the insurrection a couple of days ago on the Capitol building. And this disproportionate use of force really speaks to a longer historical conversation about how Black bodies have been disproportionately policed, seen as super violent and predatory, and therefore in need of larger um, forms and more aggressive forms of control. Although these incidents are seen as external to the workplace, Black people exist in multiple spaces and contexts. And a lot of my broader work around DEI tries to understand how it is that Black people are navigating this work environment, some of which may be primarily white. also spaces where people lack the skills and capabilities to hold discussions about race, to have productive conversations about race, and actually to create meaningful changes within the workplace they're having to suppress a lot of what it means to be Black in those spaces, because there's not a well source to support any sort of emotional, psychological, or physical and economic needs in the workplace. Some of my colleagues and I, several years ago, wrote a paper that we titled Calling in Black to Work. We were inspired to write this paper because all of us were doctoral students at the time when within 48 hours, Philando Castile and Alton Sterling were murdered by police. And this was documented on video and went viral on social media. And the four of us were experiencing what we now understand as vicarious racial trauma. There was a psychological reaction to another Black person being murdered, us thinking that it could have been a member of our family or or even ourselves for doing everyday things like driving your car or stopping at a gas station. And we've seen, you know, over the last few years, more instances of white people, uh, white women in particular, calling the police on Black people for doing everyday things. And this led us to feel very disengaged from our work, wanting there to be some sort of acknowledgement that these things are occurring and that is actually making it difficult for us to carry on business as usual. This phenomenon of some external events seeping into the workplace and affecting us as individuals is also happening at the collective level. The overwhelming silence of organizational leaders then to to issues of racial injustice made it really difficult for Black employees to feel cared for, that they would want to stay in these organizations as a psychologically safe place for them to be vulnerable and transparent about what is going on in their everyday lives. And part of the suppression would emerge as a form of code switching, as people pretending as if these things don't bother them. And code switching goes on from there to including other aspects of how people present themselves physically and and in their behavior. But for the purposes of trying to understand how external events affects Black employees and other employees of color internally, we've also seen in public health scholarship where ICE raids in several states in the United States was disproportionately affecting Latinx workers. This affected everything from the health of women who were carrying children. They tended to have their babies earlier at lower birth weights in, in areas that had ice raids. not too long before they gave birth. This also affected their desires to go to work if there was a potential that they could be stopped and asked to seize their papers and fear deportation. The COVID pandemic, showcased how people were willing to assault Asian identified persons when they were seen in public spaces. There were children who had knives drawn on them in Texas, Asian children. So in thinking about, you know, how can someone concentrate on work when their everyday livelihood is being jeopardized? And at the same time, their mostly white colleagues are ignoring these instances. We've only recently seen CEOs react to these issues. Before, it was every once in a while, there was a Starbucks CEO, you know, feeling quite impassioned about Michael Brown's murder in Ferguson, Missouri. And his response led to several of his employees engaging in a, a campaign to want to have conversations about race. And we saw that fall apart very quickly. Laura and I, along with our colleague, the president of Simmons University, Lynn Wooten, wrote a case about this Race Together campaign. And although it was all in good faith and passion, as Laura said, it had a lot of heart, it lacked the structural and sort of meaningful components that are necessary for us to carry out DEI efforts when it comes to race. Instead, Starbucks was seen as lacking a clear structural analysis of what it means to have a conversation about race, Why is this burden being placed on their mostly Black, low-income, and brown baristas instead of these senior executives who at the time were overwhelmingly white? And why not do something with your financial dollars as a company about race instead of just having a conversation about it? And we're seeing that come up again as CEOs this past summer released statements addressing how the murder of George Floyd is a business issue, it's something they should care about, here are all these pledges and donations that our company is gonna do in response to this. And at the same time, employees of those same companies mentioned how there is a lack of concern about retaining them as employees, that prior to these events, there was no any sort of retribution or conversations about the ongoing discrimination and racism they're experiencing inside the workplace and how it was quite hypocritical of their CEOs to, again, do something that they're quite passionate to do. And it's not a bad thing to speak out on these issues, but how can it be followed up with meaningful action that actually creates change, not only externally with the pledges, but internally as well. That's a very long-winded answer (laughs) to your question.
0: Now, I think it brings forward several points. One being that we often say things, we say we care. And I'm sure the CEO of Starbucks, or I assume the CEO of Starbucks, who I don't know, actually does care. And yet, if our words are only words, they are inadequate to address the bigger underlying issues. The other thing you said that really speaks to me is that the experiences people are having outside of work can cause them to be certainly less productive if I'm worried about driving to work. And Mm -hmm. I was thinking about before this interview this morning, can I even be my best in doing the interview? Because I'm, my head is elsewhere. And in fact, I was supposed to be recording an interview at three o'clock on Wednesday. The protesters had just breached the Capitol. They had issued the shelter in place order and we canceled it because it was going to be impossible to do our best with that happening in the background. And that's not happening directly to me. That's not me as a black or brown person wondering if I'm going to be deported on my way to work tomorrow. Or wondering if my children are going to be safe going to school or driving. So I think we as leaders... Are unaware in many cases of the bigger context of people's lives and how that context significantly adversely impacts. And one of the things I'm curious about, and you may not have answers to this, but we're looking at the rates of depression uh, because of the pandemic. If black and brown people have less access to health care, their health outcomes are worse, that we know. How is the depression rate and the anxiety rate must be higher? also, which would impact just the ability to show up?
2: Yes, that's a timely question. Some of my colleagues were actually the same people who wrote that Calling in Black piece. We are working on a piece right now that is titled The Recovery Guide in our Love Letter to Black Employees. And it's essentially pointing out exactly as you said, the depression and anxiety rate for a lot of adults in this pandemic has increased dramatically. And coupling that with the racial fatigue and trauma that Mary Frances Winters is writing about in her forthcoming book on Black Fatigue, it exacerbates and also makes things like depression anxiety look differently. We also know that depression anxiety increases whenever there is um, loss of employment. And just this past month, the employment gains were only were majority held by white people in the country. Mm. Majority of the losses to employment were people of color. Majority of Latinx and, and followed by Black and Asian people, the loss of jobs is disproportionately affecting those communities. And these are also the communities that are more likely to be hospitalized and die from COVID. So there is not just depression, anxiety, there's grief and trauma. And those coupled with the lack of a systemic structural solution to how we're disseminating vaccines, to how we're ensuring safety nets for jobs to how we are not delivering financial aid from the government in ways that will actually help buttress the ongoing economic crisis that we are we are falling into i can only imagine that we will see increasing spikes of depression and anxiety and my hope is that you know clinical definitions of depression and anxiety do not tend to take a cultural lens so how can we ensure that clinicians and psychologists are trained to see signs of depression in communities of color when what it looks like for for this group may may look differently than it does for the white majority.
0: Let's turn our conversation now to what can we do? I want listeners to walk away with concrete actions and I would put them into a couple of different buckets. What do I as a person do? I lead a family or I participate in a family. coach soccer or I belong to my church or I just am a human being in a community that has an opportunity to be a better person. And then the second category is differing levels of leaders and leadership. What can we as leaders do? And you've pointed out that it is nice to give voice to our support and it's insufficient. What else can we do? And for me, I definitely need to stop saying I have that same experience. So that's one, but there's a lot more. So what else can we do? I'm so
2: glad you mentioned the various spheres of influence that we as individuals have. I think what's also so interesting about those spheres in our society, they tend to be segregated. So when we think about a phrase that we like to use in Black culture is go get your people. (laughs) And this means because we're in a segregated society, White people go get your white people, right? So so in your majority white churches, schools, neighborhoods, banks, workplaces, those are the spaces where these conversations need to be had and where accountability needs to occur. So when you're witnessing someone saying something that's considered a light racist joke, it's not that serious. It's stemming from a larger structural issue. So how can we build up the courage Laura and her colleague, Jim Dieter at Darden, has written about this as well. We need courage in our conversations. We as individuals need to hold each other accountable in love and courageously call people into checking their racism, checking their forms of oppression. So I I think that's one thing as individuals we can do is, is to start with where we have influence and not only, like you said, saying the words, but practicing them as well how can we practice being anti-racist? There was a huge move of people buying how to be anti-racist this summer. And I would love to see a lot of that reading go in into practice. As an educator, you know, the best way to know if someone's retained information is how well they can teach it to others and innovate on it. So I think we're past the reading phase. We are at the action and practice and messing up and doing better the next time phase. So building up some resilience and grit so that it's not, I'm afraid to start because if I say something wrong, I'm done. I've, I've, I've done all I can. And, and I'm just, I can't help myself. How can we practice get it wrong and then hold each other accountable to do better the next time and keep going.
0: You said something that I think is really important that many of us are afraid to say something because I'm going to say the wrong thing or I'm going to say it well-intended, but not quite perfectly. And so we just say nothing and having grace with each other that most of us, many of us, I don't know how many, are really trying to move the needle in a constructive way. And we are learning as we go.
2: Absolutely. Yes. So that would be my advice, especially for managers. We lack experimentation as part of a JEDI justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion strategy in the workplace. It is either an outlandish goal, we will increase our number of executives of people of color 25% by the year 2021, or it is nothing and we need more experimentation in between, I believe, in order for there to be sustained momentum. Instead of just saying there's one goal that we need to work towards and once we reach that we're done, how can this become an everyday practice and how can companies create competencies that we can measure you on and help you progress further along your anti-racist journey as
0: managers. That would be my advice. Laura, let's go to you. And you were talking earlier about freedom. I'd like to explore that further.
1: Yeah, as I just reflect on what Courtney has shared and what Dr. King called the fierce urgency of now, right? It's that we've, we're, we're at a critical juncture here. We can choose who we wish to become you know, there's so many people who are saying, this is not who we are. This is not who we are. This is not. I don't think that narrative is quite effective because it's disconnected from reality. How are you showing me, you know, of in full 4D you know, <laughs> to mention what what vitriol and, and, and disregard and hate look like? And then at the same time saying, this is not who we are. It is. It's part of who we are. But let's say this is not who we want to be. So, how can we be who we want to be? Let's start with that framing. This is not who we want to be. So, who do we want to be? You know, if we want to be the bedrock of freedom, then we all need to commit to being freedom fighters. And that is the action plan that I would lay out as an invitation for everyone in their various spheres of influence. There are four key freedoms that we can all help to promote. The first is the freedom for people to be their authentic selves, their whole selves, as long as they are not repressing or oppressing other people. That freedom to be one's full authentic self can stand, can be harnessed, and oftentimes we're we're talking about things like hairstyles, and mm-hmm. you know, and facial. It's 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 not about you know the the freedom to spew hate, but that's one important freedom, Maureen.
0: Well, and as you say, that the freedom to be their authentic self, unless they are oppressing someone else. That's right. For listeners whose authentic self thinks that, um, that it is acceptable to injure people because they look differently. You don't get to be your authentic self. Sorry. So, so I think there is a, an important distinction between being authentic and being damaging to other people. That that's point. right. And
1: that's something that we really have to course correct because in the past, past five years, our narrative around authenticity has been unfiltered self-expression, impulsive behavior, whatever I say, I feel I should be allowed to do whatever I want to do. I'm going to rip off my mask without having regard for anyone else. Even if that means I'm literally spewing a deadly virus in the faces of essential workers and so on and so forth. Hey, I don't like masks, that's constraining. I don't want to be constrained. No. So the first is the freedom to be authentic self in a responsive and communal way. The second is the freedom to become one's best self. That means that we're in a context where we're able to grow and develop and discover and explore and thrive and flourish and not be constrained to the limitations of others' imagination or to the under-resourcing and under-capitalization of our social context because that inhibits our ability to become our best selves or even discover or imagine our best selves. The third freedom is the freedom to be average. This one really gets people's goat because they're like, no, 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 what are you talking about? I'm at such and such elite institution and we don't, average it is not acceptable here in my school or my corporation or my university. We don't buy that. Like, yeah, you do. Average means that there's a norm, there's a dominant perspective. And when your practices become part of that norm, part of the dominant perspective, that's one way of thinking of average. The second is there's an edge of, of tolerance and grace, which you mentioned before, Maureen, that also allows someone to be average. It means you can have your good days, you can also have your bad days. That blends into that fourth freedom and it's the freedom to fail and to get another chance to try again. So if you can do something wrong, if it's criminal, you get arrested and you get tried in the court. If it's in work, you make a mistake, you don't get fired. You get a chance to learn from that and you get an opportunity to to grow from there. We all have coworkers who are not extraordinary. We all have coworkers who are mediocre, but the psychology of exceptionalism has been applied more so to people on the margin saying you've got to be twice as good, you've got to do twice as much. So when we are free, we allow other people the space that they need to grow and develop And sometimes they're great, and sometimes they're actually not great. But that's our responsibility, is to help them to walk that journey to be there. That's what freedom fighting looks like on a day-to-day basis. So parents, think about that with your kids. Are you giving them the space to exercise those four freedoms in the household? Because if you're not, that's gonna be pent up and they're gonna move forward in the world and start to manifest some of that you know, angst and oppression onto others. But of course, managers and coworkers, can immediately apply those principles to.
0: You know, and again, I know I only have a few seconds before we need to cut the interview, but I love the idea of the freedom to be average and the freedom to fail. I don't need to prioritize necessarily my work. I may need to prioritize my family as a single parent supporting children. And what's left is I show up and I do my job and I do it well but I don't aspire to the next level of promotion because I don't have enough bandwidth. I aspire to do a good job and the job I'm being paid for, or I wanna stay in my community to support my extended family. I can't right now aspire to that next promotion that's gonna relocate me because I have a parent who's ill or any number of, of situations that mean at this point in time in my life, average or doing my doing the best with what I've got is acceptable that message I think has to be important and it goes back to summarize a lot of the conversation the context in which I live dictates what I have to give and I'm gonna then throw it back to you because I can't summarize your lifetime's work in you know 30 seconds but that we treat people with understanding that they all have gifts and limitations, every single one of us. And we treat people with the utmost of respect and we make the effort to understand who they are and create structures so that all of us thrive. And then the anti-racist piece is we also try to undo the biases and discrimination that have us at this point in history It is not enough to say, but now we can wipe the slate and say, let's all be fair today going forward. That doesn't undo that your kids may not have gotten the same education because they were afraid. So any final words before we go?
1: Beautifully said. I I think that's even more important right now as we are in the midst of a global pandemic and all of our capacity has shifted. And so we really need to pay attention to this Sisyphean task of work engagement in the 21st century, in the year 2021. We continue to ask people to do more with less, do more with less, do more with less. And as a result, we're gonna get less. So we've got to help continue to empower people to make those kinds of choices. That's noble, that's righteous, righteous, that's compassionate. And it's also wise leadership. So if we could all take stock of that and then allow people the, the equitable freedoms to contribute in the ways that they can best right now, I, I think that will do us all a positive service as we move forward.
2: I also see businesses shifting away from the desire for economic gains. They are starting to realize the means are not worth it. They have, as of today, they have condemned a lot of the actions that they had in support of political leaders that allowed mm-hmm. so much inequality to persist during these past four years. And so hopefully that, sh- that momentum will continue where we're thinking in more collective and cooperative ways that can also help us realize freedoms at a more structural systemic level. So how can we move towards, as Laura said earlier, collective thriving instead of just focusing on our individual pursuits?
0: Thank you both. Laura Morgan Roberts, Courtney McClooney, I strongly encourage you, read what they're writing, keep reading what they're writing, and most importantly, say it and do it. Make the changes that make us a better world. Thank you for investing your precious time with us today. We're delighted to share the wisdom from the International Leadership Association 2020 Global Leadership Conference, Leading at the Edge. We encourage you to join for additional conversations. Please bookmark this podcast, subscribe, like it, share it with your friends and colleagues. Most importantly, thank you for focusing on elevating your own leadership and making an impact in the world today.